right. Welcome, everyone. This is the Reality Arts Podcast, and we are your hosts tonight, Nate, Tony, and Thomas. And we are excited to bring James Corbett. James, uh, you are an OG in this truth movement. Um, we are so excited to have you here. I had a whole speech I wanted to do to bring you in, but it seems silly now. Uh, James, thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, yeah, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Um, this is your first time on the show. Do you want to tell your audience the best way to find you? Uh, probably the best way is CorbettReport.com. Um, I am on a number of different social media platforms and what have you, but the easiest and best way is CorbettReport.com because, as your audience may or may not know, I used to be on YouTube until they scrubbed my channel. And uh, suddenly I had a bunch of people. I, I had 600,000 YouTube subscribers or something like that. Um, anyway, I had a bunch of people who just thought I vanished off the face of the earth. Because although I introduce every single thing I do with, hey, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, <laughs> there was a lot of people who didn't quite understand how to find my work after I wasn't on YouTube anymore. So let's not have that happen again. Stop following people on social media. Start, start following them on their websites if they have them. My website is CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Awesome. Thank you, James. Uh, so tonight, I mean, we we discussed like a few topics, but we can really sort of kind of go all over the place. I know that uh, my co-hosts here have some questions, too. Um, and I, I think, uh, Tony, you want to get this started, buddy? Sure. Um, so <laughs> I guess my first question is um, you've been talking about after watching your media series, just kind of big picture, like what parallels do you see between like what's happening now with the technology we get in, like even the internet is really new and with like the printing press. And do you feel like we're in like this historical parallel where like, we're just going to have these bloody wars. And do, do you feel like there's going to be a new revolution? Or do you feel like this is something else or I'll let you kind of go with that. Yeah, this is a topic that's interested me for a long time, way before I ever thought I'd ever be in, involved in media production of any sort. I, I never wanted to get into media. I had no particular interest in it. I didn't study it. I didn't have, take any lessons on it. I just started doing a podcast because back 15, 16 years ago, I just I thought there was so much information out there that wasn't being reported in the media that, hey, we're in the Internet age. I can start a podcast. Um, and I think I understood the the importance of this time that we're living through, because I remember even back when I was a teenager growing up, I remember around the uh, the turn of the millennium, they, they had something on CNN or TLC or some channel, I don't know, um, about the, the greatest inventions of the past thousand years. And I remember that list. And when it gets to the top 10 and they're starting to count down, you know, airplanes and computers and things like this. And you're thinking, yeah, okay, pretty big inventions. And then I was thinking to myself, well, what's going to be number one? What is going to be the number one invention of the past thousand years? It's better. It better be something really impressive. And the number one invention was the Gutenberg movable type printing press. And when I thought about that for a second, I was like, yeah, I'll go with that. That probably did change the course of history. I've always had that palpable sense of the revolution that took place in those times. So as you say, I recently produced the Media Matrix documentary series where I talk about, about the development of mass media from the time of Gutenberg onwards. And when you really start to delve into that time period um, post-Gutenberg and the incredible upheavals in society that took place as a result of this incredible explosion of information, I think it's quite obvious that people who are involved in power centers and maintaining a certain status quo 
understood the revolutionary nature of communication technology and wanted to control it. And uh, there were obviously ham-fisted attempts to simply just censor the press, but that didn't work so well. It wasn't really until the consolidation of the press into this publishing industry and then broadcasting industry in the 19th and 20th centuries that really we saw the 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 corking of that bottle of the Gutenberg revolution and I, I again since it's since it really started to take off I've seen the internet as Gutenberg 2.0 the bottle has been uncorked again people are able to communicate in ways that they when I was growing up I never would have being able to conceptualize being a podcaster in a living room in Japan, talking to millions of people around the world, it makes no sense. But here we are. So I'm very, very keenly aware of how revolutionary this time is and the technology that's enabling it. And that's exactly why I think the powers that shouldn't be are cracking down as hard as they can, trying to censor, trying to control, again, using the ham-fisted attempts to try to put the cork back in the bottle. Um, I think history shows that generally doesn't work. There will always be ways around the censorship. But the more the more worrying question on a much deeper level is the way that we are essentially playing out this, the same sort of process of the consolidation of this incredible free exchange of information back into these controlled, centralized corporate platforms that can then sort of dictate and mold and shape the societal conversation in the way that the big six media outlets did back in the 20th century. And that's my biggest fear actually, is that we head into that. And as that starts to turn into the metaverse and these other types of technologies that are going to fundamentally transform our relationship to media or even our conception of what media is, there are some amazing, incredible revolutionary times coming and I don't know what's going to come out on the other side of it, but it is it is truly exciting to be here in these times and to have a part to play in this incredible revolution that's happening. Yeah, and, sorry, um, but also just like that's a, such a good point you have where it's not just the suppression, but it's also like these are the recommended sources. And that was true probably 300 years ago, and it's true now. Yeah. Uh, an, another topic that I've I've heard you bring up that is one of my favorite and more obscure is the the Weisner's Wolitzer concept, which is kind of an ex, uh, a related extension to Operation Mockingbird and things like this. And uh, there was there was one talk from uh, last year, I think, where you're mentioning that they don't even have to pretend or go undercover. They can just come out and say, hey, I worked for the CIA. Therefore, I'm yeah. an expert. Listen to what I say. And people are like, oh, yeah, great American hero. Let's get his perspective. And then they just become Fox News correspondents and, you know, CNN and so on and so forth. So I'm just curious that at what point or at like what types of mainstream media or is it just a hundred percent infiltrated by CIA and intelligence agencies at this point? Yeah, it's a good question. It's almost like trying to divide a, a hair in half or something. Where does the intelligence agency end and the media company begin? Is there really a separation at what level does that separation take place? At any rate, I think broadly speaking, the corporate media, the establishment media and the intelligence agencies have broadly the same aims anyway. So it doesn't even particularly matter the particular individuals so much as the broad ideology of what's being pointed out. But yeah, that was something that I, I noticed. And I, I think it's worth pointing out is that um, the old, the CIA and the news media, which was a uh, famous article by um, um, Bernstein, Carl Bernstein and Rolling Stone in 1977, I believe, after the church committee hearings exposed the 
Operation Mockingbird, although that isn't actually what it was called, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, everyone knows that the, the CIA was infiltrating the news media um, back in the 50s, 60s, the 70s. Um, but they they totally stopped that, right, guys? No, of course, they didn't stop that. Well, um, well is that, I'm just curious on your perspective, was it really a case of the uh, the news media being infiltrated by the intelligence agencies, or had they just always been the, you know, one hand and washing the other since forever? Because even yeah. the origin of like Joseph Pulitzer and the Jekyll yeah. Hunt Club, um, you know, they sort of had already owned the media at that point, no? Right. I think this is uh, broadly a reflection of that, what I was talking about earlier, the consolidation of the the free flow of printed information into these corporate controlled centralized hands. Of course, there are going to be people who are in positions of power monetarily in corporate nature but also governmentally and in the intelligence agencies and they're going their interests are going to converge in a lot of ways and as you say they you know you scratch my back i'll scratch yours they there are all sorts of over the table and under the table agreements that they come to and you see examples of that for example if you read the bernstein article you get the sense that people like uh, bill paley and others it's not necessarily again that they were being even necessarily on the payroll or anything of these agencies, but they were personal friends with the director of the CIA who comes into Bill Paley's office and says, Hey, can you, can you run this story? Or, Hey, I think you guys should hire this reporter and, and Bill Paley rubber stamps it. And there's, there's not even a formal agreement. They just sort of know each other. So again, yeah. Sorting out exactly who, you know, in what way is, is this taking place? It's, it's the broad consensus of ideology. But as you say, I, I pointed out last year in the CIA and the, the media 2.0 that, yeah, that was that was then. That was your granddaddy's CIA media collaboration. But now it's it's absolutely openly announced. And here's the ex-director of the CIA to comment on domestic insurrection or whatever. And everyone just accepts, accepts that as if it's normal to accept the intelligence agency just coming out and essentially doing an intelligence agency press release live on air <laughs> as if it's news. It's like a podcast now. Actually, think about it. Yeah, the CIA does have a podcast. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, I, I'm going to finish up. I got one other question related to that. What role do secret societies, if any, even play a role today if so much is being done out in the open or through the corporate back channels? Do you think that there's even sort of an influence from you know, uh, Freemasons or any other sort of like shadowy uh, American societies? I think intelligence agencies are just outgrowth of the secret societies. And that's why, for example, the early art roster of the CIA was almost exclusively Yale men who were part of Skull and Bones. It was just the sort of the, the evolution of the secret societies that have existed for centuries, if not millennia. And that um, what what are secret societies? They are ways of gaining rosters of members who are devoted to keeping secrets and who will help each other out in various circumstances. What are intelligence agencies? They are there to collect and store secrets and to have people who will help each other out to accomplish aims that may or may not have anything to do with their explicitly stated aims. It's the same thing. So again, where does the secret society end and this, the intelligence agencies begin? I don't know. All I know is I didn't go to Yale. I didn't get tapped on my shoulder and you know, put into one of these agents or agencies or secret societies. But I think so. You say <laughs> it's going to be a good recruiting zone. If you're in Skull and Bones, you can recruit any kind of CIA person from there, and mm -hmm. probably not all of them, but yeah, yeah. 
so one thing that you were just talking about, so the printing press being this, uh, being the most revolutionary thing, uh, the most innovative or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I was thinking about that too. That was like, so the same way they're trying to like quash our speech right now because of the internet that this was, that was basically the second printing press. And that's what you're saying is like, um, because without that, um, they would have never had, um, oh man, what do you call that? Uh, Martin Luther, what did the reformation? The and reformation. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, ca the Catholic church was that authoritative like power at the time and the way they tried to shut it down, but you can see that it didn't work. That, like you said, you can't put the cork back in the bottle. Now there's 10,000 different flavors of Christianity and it'll never be the same. And I think that in that same way, like podcasters, us, agorists, people that are freedom-minded, there's no way they're ever going to put the cork back in the bottle. We will find a way to do it. And so I like to look at that in that past reference as a way of, and, you know, they have like new ways to uh, slap our wrists now and they have new ways to monitor us and all that different type of things. But we will find a way. I agree. Where way. there's a will, there's a way. But is there the will? And that's always the question because uh, the the most insidious part. Again, it's kind of it's kind of like the Huxley Orwell different visions of the future. It's not necessarily the boot stamping on your face forever that you have to be concerned about. It's the people who want the boot stamping the boot. on their face <laughs> and the people who will willingly start self censoring and not saying certain things. Cause I know I'll get demonetized on YouTube or whatever it is. That's the slippery slope towards you don't need censors looking over everything you do because you're going to censor yourself. I've got a good friend that works in China right now. And uh, he is telling me that he actually kind of likes all of this, <laughs> all of the weird censorship. He likes the weird security state uh, and he will just, and, we just had this weird, awkward conversation. He's really embracing the boot on the face. And, you know, and there are weird little advantages to that. Like he's saying, like, a girl can, like, walk to the store at 10 o'clock at night and nothing's going to happen because there's a million cameras and nothing's going to happen. And so there is that. But, man, just the state. And, and then at the end of it, he'll admit it. He was like, well, it causes a problem, maybe, because all of a sudden the state has a lot more power. And I'm like. Uh-huh. Because when he first went there, uh, they put him in a, some sort of like jail, weird hospital quarantine because uh, this was around the Rona time. And so and he was it was him and one other person. They were in a 12 by 12 room. There was 15 cameras on him <laughs> on two people inside of this one little room. And he kept testing positive, kept testing positive. They kept him there for almost two months. Before, before they put him back in normal quarantine where he had to test negative for a couple of weeks in like this little hotel. And then he got to start his job over there. That sounds like literal hell. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the, the same kind of uh, programming you'd go through if you were about to enter a penitentiary for a really long time and they start you off in isolation to kind of break you a little bit and figure out, you know, where you belong. Well, the society is a penitentiary. That, yeah. yeah. That could have been breaking, yeah, breaking the buck a little. Well, bit. if you said he came out of the yeah. tail end of it, and he's like, "I like this boot," you know, I love the way that leather tastes. Yeah, or when you enter the military, and they shave yeah. your head and make you march in line, and uh, yeah, so, it's uh, all sorts of indoctrinations and ways of getting people into various clubs, and that, and this is one of them. This is how the biosecurity state is engineered and brought in and people start to normalize it and every time there's going to be any sort of declared problem in the future oh you know what to do get in line get tested isolate 
sit in your room. And you know what? It'll be super safe. Because, yeah, if there's millions of cameras everywhere watching everything, there will be less crime. And, hey, if we just lock everyone in their homes all the time, then there will be no crime. Yay. Problem solved, right? So, James, what brought you to the world of volunteerism? Like, uh, that's, like you've talked a lot about how you got into the conspiracy world or, the, you know. But, like, were you always a volunteer? Were you brought up in this? or? Absolutely not. No, 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 no. Uh, it... Uh, I guess I guess some people might be brought up in it, but I I, I mentioned they're few and far be t- between, and I'm no exception. No, uh, I of course was a statist from birth, as I think most people are, and grew up with all the sort of usual statist conceptions, and and uh, have vacillated between. Well, uh, growing up as a Canadian, uh, I, I mean, I'm socialist by default, right? Uh, you know, good. The government will take care of us, and we all just have to take care of and each you're other. You're fish but, in water in hey, that regard. It's it's really disgusting, but uh, very effective programming. And that's, I think, why Canada is so far down the path towards tyranny right now is because the Canadian people are just generally very, very, very trusting in their government. And um, I think partly maybe because I'm I was born and raised in Alberta, which is kind of the Texas of the north. It's it's independent. We're we're mavericks. You know, we don't like the, the feds and all that kind of stuff. It's is that kind of spirit. And so uh, I've always had some sort of like, well, I'm not, it's not like I love the government per se. So I've always had a little bit of that, but it wasn't really until I started delving down the rabbit hole and really discovering the true nature of government and what it is that I started to realize, oh, this has nothing to do with left and right. This isn't about those, those types of, that type of system. This is, this is about something much more fundamental. And, and uh, so I was initially attracted to the ideas and ideals of the, the American Revolution, um, because that's not really something that we delve deeply into in Canadian, you know, history courses when I'm a child. So I, I never really got I got the secondhand indoctrination from watching, you know, American cartoons and programming growing up. American but gladiators. I never really got into the history. But once I started to learn about that and I started to think about these things on a deeper level, I started to resonate with the the words and the ideals of some of the uh, the founding fathers and what have you. So then I started to think at a certain point, well, I guess I'm sort of libertarian, maybe libertarian party or something like that. Third party is the way to go. Um, but as they say, what's the old joke? Uh, what's the difference between a libertarian and, anarch- and an anarchist? It's something like uh, six months, if you're being honest. Um, well, it took me a few years. But anyway, <laughs> I, I at a certain point, I had to realize that, no, there's a more much more fundamental part to all of this. And that is that there is no moral ethical justification for the state. The state should not exist. And once you once you open that Pandora's box, oh, okay, well, that, that certainly puts you outside of the outside. And I know even most of my audience probably doesn't agree with me on this point, but it is what it is. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, yeah, definitely. Some of the freedom, freedom-minded folks, they, they still aren't on board with anarchism quite yet, but we're working on it. If, if you didn't already have a massive state put together, right, and you were already kind of broken up, almost like um, almost like um, ancient sort of Sumerian different tribes that kind of connect to each other, how do you prevent the, those Phoenicians coming in and just dominating trade and just becoming a de facto superpower through efficiency and ingenuity? Like, do you... Like it, almost contradictory, you have to almost like put some kind of protection in place, do you not, to prevent that from happening? 
Well, one that assumes that protection can only come through some sort of coercive governmental structure. Um, I think uh, people who understand that there is a need for, there is a threat and there is a need for a response to that threat can come together to to respond to that threat without forming a government. Um, it doesn't have to take that form. But I think more fundamentally, I, what you're gesturing at is is the more, sort of the more interesting question, I guess, the, the, the meatier question. Because yes, from my perspective, I mean, even if you wanted to have a utilitarian stance, what will be the best for the best number of people? I, I do think that um, statelessness would be the way to go. But um, morally, ethically, there's no question in my mind that there is no ethical justification for 51% of the people deciding what 49% are going to do or anything along those lines. But the more interesting question is, yeah, okay, but how do we get from here to there? Because we live in this world in which it's all div divvied up uh, along these borders and there are these states. And if you have one pocket of voluntarist statelessness somewhere, well, then of course, it's just going to be invaded and taken over and enslaved and whatever. Um, and that that really is the question. How do we get from here to there? Which is why it's always, uh, even before I was a uh, voluntarist, I, I understood this is much more about a revolution of the mind than some sort of revolution that's going to be waged, you know, in a battlefield with bullets. There's no way you're going to be able to kill the idea of state statism through physical violence. It will have to be people understanding the need for getting rid of the, the coercions of the state. And uh, an example of that that I, th I found compelling, um, well, there's a couple. I, I used to have this uh, podcast series called Film Literature and the New World Order, um, where I looked at books and movies and things. And one of them um, was Heinlein's uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is a really interesting example of how an anarchist revolution could take place, in this case, on the moon, in a colony on the moon. So, but from that sci-fi perspective, it was it's an interesting way of thinking about how you could actually organize and overthrow some sort of statist government to, to come up with some sort of anarchist type system. Um, another uh, really good uh, example was a story by uh, Frank, Frank Russell, I believe. Um, and then there were none, um, which was about, again, it's science fiction, but it's about a, a planet of essentially people it's a it's a stateless voluntarist planet where these people um, from Earth try to go. It's a colony of of humans that that um, went away hundreds of years ago, and they're and basically Earth is trying to reestablish contact with these guys and trying to come in with their their military and their marching orders. And okay, we're gonna set, set this place straight, and no one will do anything that these people say. Because there, no one will listen to orders. No one will just accept someone else because he's wearing a funny badge or whatever. And they literally have no way of taking over this planet because no one will do anything that they're they're asking them to do. And it, again, it, it it sort of puts in that that perspective that yes, this is not something that's going to happen through some sort of physical compelling or violence or or something along those lines. It can only happen when there is widespread understanding of the ideas behind that. And we are way, way far away from that at this point. This is why it is uh, f so fundamental to get the information, the philosophy, the ideas of this out to the uh, general public before we can even start to think about actually implementing a stateless society in reality. Yeah, I mean, another example that I look at is one that you can look at on Earth and not necessarily on the moon is like Afghanistan. Uh, try as they might, like their culture is different they're not uh they're very what's the word i'm looking for uh decentralized 
and they have different tribes and different ideas and they they're very stuck in their culture and so every time we tried to hand them a gun and say you're this kind of person you're all you're all whatever you're all afghanis they're like no i'm not i'm this tribe yeah. you know and as soon as we'd leave they'd be like throw their gun and run you know as soon as we turn around and um so you're right that it has to be a revolution of the mind. It has to start in the mind because we've been so indoctrinated in the public schooling. And so we are just, we're Americans and we do what the cops say. And we just have this type of mentality where we trust the government and everything that's involved. And so the first step is like, what you can do is keep your kids out of government indoctrination camp. Very first thing you can do. If you overthrew the government tomorrow, the first thing that would happen is everyone's starting a new government. It's like, okay, all right, now let's get the new government. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and less and until people understand sort of the, the, the underlying necessity for getting rid of why, why would we not, uh, how can we possibly function without a government? And less and until you start expanding the awareness of that, I don't think, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on what, what's happening do you think let's let's project the next six months what are we looking at as far as money do you think that they're really going to be throwing those cbdc's out like i know they're testing them and playing with them mm -hmm. how long is it until paper money is gone in your opinion well they are uh they're already rolled out in certain countries and they're in various processes of staging testing and what have you in in pretty much every other country. So uh, I wouldn't say six months is my time frame. certainly not in the US, but um, within six years, we're definitely going to be seeing more CBDCs on the market. Um, I, I did a uh, CBDCs Beyond the Basics podcast last year that people should check out where um, I hope people understand CBDC, central bank digital currency, and at least understand the idea of what a central bank digital currency could be like, programmable money that the government uh, not the government, the central bank, which isn't part of the government, right, um, would issue directly to people uh, through some sort of electronic wallet and that they could put various, any restrictions that they want on the use of that money. And it shouldn't take much imagination to understand just how much of a threat that is to to even the pretense of liberty um, at the point at which they can start programming your money so that you can only spend it on certain days at certain locations in certain ways and you can't. You can't buy that. You can't do that. It's game over for human freedom, essentially. So I think we understand the gravity of what we're facing. But beyond that, there are there are a lot of different factors that go into this. And not interestingly enough, not every banker at the table is actually necessarily has their bread buttered on the CBDC side. And I tried to go into that in my Beyond the Basics, where I showed that, in fact, the commercial banking system as it exists right now is predicated on the central bank not directly issuing the money. They have to issue it through the, uh, the commercial banks, which issue them in the form of debt and all of that uh, jiggery pokery that goes on. So in fact, the entire commercial banking sector, it kind of relies on the fact that the C central bank isn't directly issuing retail currency to people. Um, so CBDCs could upset that balance, which is why they're not just flipping the switch and doing it all overnight. There's all these tests and programs and what can we do and in what way. And you know, I've I've been saying for years that, yes, I think the U.S. dollar will be replaced as a world reserve currency eventually, probably within within a decade or two. But but how and what will come along to take its place and what will that look like? Um, will there be some as special drawing rights, as uh, was being talked about several years ago by the IMF or something to take that place? Well, from our perspective, it might not even matter. 
because we would still be working in our dollars and yen and pesos and whatever euros and what have you. It's just that behind the scenes, the central banks themselves would be coordinating all of this through their special drawing rights or whatever system that they concoct. And similarly with CBDCs, it may not be necessarily a retail CBDC that we get a our own digital wallet to use, it may be happening at the, the banking level where the banks are operating these CBDCs. So there's, again, there's so many different ways that this could play out. And yeah. I think, I would like to think that taking, completely replacing, like no paper money, you can't use that anymore. And now it's all digital. I'd like to think we're still several years of indoctrination away from that. I, I think most people can understand that that's a, a step too far, but maybe not. I mean, our, in Europe, in many places in Europe, they're already essentially going cashless. Scandinavia is becoming cashless. So we're not too far away from it. Yeah, that's that is really interesting. Uh, I was I was thinking about that, too. And that's another cultural thing. It's like, I, what do you call them? Uh, the good whites, like the, the good proper white people in this country that like are educated and the woke, the woke folks, uh, they're going to adopt this right away because they think this is the right thing to do. This is clean, whatever. And I was actually thinking our heroes are going to be the seedy people, you know, <laughs> like the people that want to go to a strip club and throw ones, people that want to sell drugs, people like people that uh, Samuel Conkin would appreciate. You know, it's, it's going to be Robin the, Hoods, right? the Robin, Robin Hoods. Hoods. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be the it's going to be the black market for the win with this, because I think that's what's going to keep this alive, because there's going to be people no matter what, there's going to be trade in the black market. And so there's going to have to be some sort of what are we going to use for a currency? What are we going to value for trade? And so I think that America is never America loves drugs. Holy crap, America loves drugs and sex and weird things. America's gross, and that's what's going to save us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a sense. Well, but I unfortunately, I think they already have that factored in. Uh, it's, it's funny. Every time I ever bring up the subject of cashless, the cashless shift or moving towards a cashless society, the first thing uh, someone will inevitably say is, yeah, but, you know, how is the CIA going to ship in the drugs if it's all cashless? Well, it, my point would be that of course, systems like this are going to be engineered with big, giant backdoor loopholes that obviously people on the inside of these systems are going to be able to exploit anytime they want in any way they need, exactly as the intelligence agencies always have done. So I don't think that's going to be a fundamental stopping uh, mm -hmm. block. But as you say, just the sort of... yeah. Yeah, the things that, well, of course, I don't want people to know about that, or I want to just go and do this without the government looking over my shoulder. There's always going to be that. So there's always going to be that need, um, which is why I think there will probably always be the, the sort of escape valves put into systems like this. It's not going to be that 100% boot on the face, because as I say, I, I don't think that's going to be the most effective way to suppress. Man, man cannot live on bread alone, right? <laughs> as the good book says yeah so uh, absolutely there will there will always be places and spaces to play but i think the the point is to engineer um a society of of perfect control would not be that 100% control over everything it would be to allow the sort of rogues and and sort of people on the in the fringes but as the sort of the dregs of society and that, you know, oh, my God, those people are weird and they're dangerous. You're going to get killed or maimed or kidnapped or something if you go over there. The Mos Eisley or whatever of, of America or any 
given state. You know, you don't want to, those are the pirates, those are the bad people, and it will all be associated with that. So as you say, the, the good, right-thinking, woke, liberal, progressives, whatever, they'll know not to go into those spaces. And again, it'll be self-censorship more than anything that keeps people away from that. Yeah, I, I always think about this. So was it like an essay that, uh, it was from the World Economic Forum and they wrote an essay of like, um, what society is going to look like in like, I don't know, like 2050 or something like that. Some, some futuristic view. And they're talking about, they, they were talking about their society, but then they were also talking about the people that didn't necessarily comply and they were living on the outskirts of society. And they were, and I was so excited. I was like that. This is the most optimistic thing. They're going to let us have our own little, <laughs> I'll go be a caveman. I'm, I'll be fine. This sounds great. Just let me exist. I'm pretty yeah. okay with yeah, that. Yeah, well, I I <laughs> they tend to think that the long-term game plan will include that sort of yeah, there will be the uh yeah, there was a there was a a, a a video I've played many times and I can never remember the name of it or where it comes from. It was from some forum that was held about, you know, the cities of the future in 2035 yeah. or something. And there was this one about Technopolis and it was this completely controlled society. They tell you where to work and how far you can drive today and when you're allowed to eat and eat and, you know, whatever. It's like the original save Epcot. The planet, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But but there was the Cry Freedom Ghetto, which uh, the character talks about, which is, of course, the place where people who don't want to live in this totally controlled society, well, they can go out there and they're they're kind of crazy and weird and they're probably, you know, all wild beasts. Essentially. We're talking about but, Demolition um, Man right now, too. <laughs> Every dystopian movie, pretty much. Yeah, every yeah, yeah. So, do you think that we split off as a species at this point? Like, to me, I see that coming. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the uh, BBC seems it coming. Uh, I don't know yeah. if you saw that 2006 article. <laughs> I've cited it a few times where they're interviewing, I, I believe it was an Oxford scientist or someone who was speculating about, well, the human species is about to diverge into two completely different species. And there will be the, uh, the gene rich and the gene poor who. The people who take the upgrades and all the, the genetic modifications and whatever is coming and the people who don't. And eventually they'll morph into two different species. And the BBC actually has this illustration of this gigantic, you know, seven foot tall blonde Aryan Superman versus this squat goblin like creature. It's, it's so bizarre. But yeah, they, they think it's coming. Yeah. It's too on the nose. They're still the eugenicists, and it's a lot of. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, you, you were mentioning how terrifying that a fifty-one percent majority. You mentioned how terrifying a fifty-one percent majority can be, and that's one of my my biggest fears. I think, or at least concerns, is that even in a decentralized, say, crypto markets, right, where you think that you've got control, all it takes is for mm. one specific faction to develop the resources to just get 51% of the vote in your ledger and now all of a sudden it wasn't so decentralized after all but you would only know yep. that after that attack kind of happens right yep that's so, exactly so true is and there is there any crypto that that's worth uh you know uh, thinking as long term or is it all subject to that that exact thing I am certainly, I'm not a, a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm also not an altcoiner per se. Um, I'm not in bed with any particular coin. Uh, I don't, I, you know, there are some that definitely claim uh, the sorts of things that I want to hear. It's all about privacy and it's, uh, you know, we're completely 100% secure and no one will ever know what's going on and blah, blah, blah. Sounds good. 
But again, you have to take it at its word um, some of the time because there's a lot of sort of black holes. And unless you're a, a developer yourself, you don't really know. And then as you say, there are systems that can easily be taken over because they have such a small market cap. Bitcoin at this part would point would be hard to do a 51% takeover, but that actually speaks to sort of the, the philosophical issue when it comes to decentralization because yeah, unless you have a broad enough and um, what, resilient enough network essentially um, to support that decentralized stru structure, it's going to be extremely easy to take it over and essentially centralize it. And then, as I said before, I think it's partially people like the centralized structures because they're generally so much easier. Wouldn't it be so much better if there was one one place we could all go to put all our information? Oh, here's Facebook, here's Twitter, here's Google. They'll make it easy for you. So unfortunately, okay. people's yeah. uh, quest for convenience often overrides the decentralization. Yeah, that quest for convenience is the reason why we're here. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I just got a newsletter yesterday, basically, you're teaching a class on how to opt out of the CBDCs. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think John Bush is running a... Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be um, speaking at that. I think I'm going to be opening it up, so basically presenting the CBDC problem. But there, yeah, there's going to be a number of speakers. I don't have the list of speakers, but uh, I know a number of people are going to be working on this problem, which is important. And for me, it again comes down to the choices that we're making, because at least at this point, at least for now, we do have choices that we can be making and we are making every single day, whether we know it or not. Every single transaction that we make is in some sense, in the most real sense, a vote for something. Um, yeah, you can go write a name on a ballot once every four years and pretend that that has some sort of change over the, the, the system. But no, every single day you are supporting businesses, you're supporting even the way that you are paying is a support for a certain system or other. Are you paying in a cashless way? Or are you paying in a cash way? Are you playing in a paying in a black or gray market way? Or are you playing paying in a white market way? Are you reporting everything nicely to the government or are you not? And every single decision is a decision that we're making. And it leads us either one step closer to towards freedom or one step away from it. And so there's a million seemingly little things that add up to a very big thing. And it could be as simple as, oh, you know, this restaurant requires you to download this app so that you can order for, you know, off the menu or something. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. Give me a paper menu or I leave. Until we start putting our foot down, even on the seemingly sim simple and, and small things, I don't. how are we ever going to flex that muscle enough to be able to do something large with it? I had that recently. I had to download an app to get a beer. And it's just the most absurd thing. <laughs> like, it just blew my mind in real life. This is happening. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. And I finally did. And it was so funny because um, they completely fucked up my order and everything because I didn't download the app. And I ended up spending $50. They did that on, on purpose. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> they were mad at you, Tony. <laughs> you got two beers on top and I have to download an app. But, yeah. My yeah, great for the day. So, uh, James, you said that um, your kind of your original DNA started in conspiracy theory and you kind of evolved into the the spot you're in here. And I would just like to know your your top three greatest hits um, for like the, the conspiracy theories that you still give credit to today that you think maybe most other people would find still incredulous. 
like like and as an example for me is i still think that um like the oklahoma city and 9-11 were all completely inside self-perpetuated jobs and uh so are there do you have like your your favorite top three yeah at this point i mean at this point what really is you know out there or fringe or verboten so much of it is now openly talked about that i i think yeah a lot of people will disagree with you about a 9-11 false flag or something i'll give you i'll give you a fairly incredible one would be like project monarch right one that doesn't necessarily have all the same backing as say like project mk ultra would uh but it still gets mm, lots and lots of ability or like a dream type topics right yeah 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 um yeah Uh, uh, there's a lot of things that i there's a lot of things that i would be will like if if they came out and were exposed i wouldn't be surprised you know adrenochrome and secret ceremonies to spill blood to in order to drink the fresh blood of you know sacrificed babies or whatever it is that these self-proclaimed would-be elitists so it wouldn't even it wouldn't even trigger you on your like shock scale at that point i i would probably just say yeah sounds about right but honestly i get the most kickback of all the stuff that i've ever talked about i get the most kickback about global warming how (laughs) dare you question the scientists and I get it. I get it from the general public. I was there. In fact, when I was starting the, the, the Corbett Report, I think probably the last penny for me to drop was, you know, I, I think they're lying about this because I myself, like, I can't believe all these scientists would know. Of course not. And so I have gotten the most consistent pushback about that over the years. And the other one is the related concept of Malthusian overpopulation fear mongering, which is total bunk it's totally wrong 100 wrong and more people is a good thing and i have had people literally unsubscribe from my website because i've said that so <laughs> i don't know like it's it's not like a crazy you know out there conspiracy stuff it's it's the to me absolute obvious anti-human agenda that is at the base of all of this that i guess people have just swallowed that that garbage so long that they actually believe it you have think- Oh, go you ahead, Tony. Have, you have video on how to take the temperature of a planet, or I forget exactly what it's called, but that was the one that made me rethink global warming. I was just like, wait a minute, like, how are we taking the temperature of this? Where are we put the thermometers? Like, this is such a simple question. <laughs> it's the kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Imagine if they actually taught this in schools. Well, actually, it's assembled from four different temperature data sets, which disagree with each other by 0.5 degrees. But we can tell within one one hundredth of a degree Celsius, you know, the warming of the it's total garbage when you start looking into it. But of course, you never get detail. It's always just a oh, scientists agree. Therefore, you're you're stupid if you don't believe this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, James, I know you want to wrap up soon. So I just wanted to say thank you. Um, I So this was like, I found your show through uh, the Pete Quinones show. Um, I found your show through, uh, because he had Richard Grove on. And through that, I found you. I found James Evan Pilato. I found uh, Monica Perez. And I found you guys at just the right time, probably around 2000, like, 16 2017 somewhere around there um and it got me ready for this and if it wasn't for you guys man i i tell you i might have got the damn jab mm-hmm. i might have just gone along with the thing i was already like a hardcore libertarian uh, i was i was an anarchist but i was still i still had the normie streak in me i was like mm-hmm. yeah but 
you still get your flu shot. You know, you still have to, like, my kid's still, I'm still going to get him circumcised. I'm, he's still, like, I don't want him to get polio, you know, something that doesn't exist anymore, or, you know. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was just, um, you guys helped us a lot. And I know that this 2020 whole Corona bullshit woke up more people, I think, than 9-11 ever did. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, your guys' message has been consistent this entire time. So I want to just say genuinely thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for the feedback. Uh, that is the feedback that makes what I do worth it. Because I know, I, I do hear from people every single day. And as you say, people are waking up in, in huge numbers right now. But what does that really mean? And, you know, where do they go from there? And how do they start to orient themselves after an entire lifetime of being ensconced in the matrix? It's, you know, I have sympathy. It isn't, it isn't easy. So um, anyway, I'm just putting out my work and people will laugh at it until they don't. And when they don't, they can join on and uh, hopefully we can move forward together, trying to find a better way through all this. There's a few of your, a few pieces of your content that still live on no matter what. They get shared all the time. And I, one example I shared with Thomas today was uh, your 9 11 and uh, explained in under five minutes. That one still goes viral. Like it'll get shared on Instagram as a reel until they take it down. Uh, it'll just, it gets bounced around. And that one is awesome. And Tony, you were telling me, and I agree with you, this was something that, uh, that you had said early on, James, like during the, quote unquote pandemic was like, find and know where your line is because they're going to push it. They're going to, they're going to throw a full assault on you. And so you're like, well, maybe I'll wear a mask to go into this store because I need to, but I'm not doing this or, you know, and just find what your line is, where you're willing to bend and where you're not. And I know that helped me out tremendously. And so I had a plan and I knew, like, no matter what, I'm at least not going this far. Awesome. Yeah, that, Glad that to was the it. best advice I got throughout this whole thing at that time. Yeah. It's still important. Still important today. Think about yeah. it in the context of the CBDCs or whatever else is coming down the line. Know where your lines are. Draw them. Don't cross them. I got to ask a lighthearted question, man, after all of this. But, like, are you sure. taking the band out on tour? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. Actually, we're recording an EP right now, and uh, it's a slow process. But yeah, we'll have a release party in April here in Western Japan. So if you're in the neighborhood, okay, drop by. I'm sure there's a lot of people that have a spare room that you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then I have to ask you one more question, and I have been forgetting recently, and this is terrible of me, uh, James. What is your favorite cryptid? If you had to pick one. Uh, Spring-heeled Jack? <laughs> your bell? Uh, I don't remember. I read a book, uh, like one of those ones you pick up at the supermarket yeah. at the checkout, uh, like when I was eight or nine or something and i just remember this story about the spring-heeled jack who would appear at people's door and say i'm the spring-heeled jack and hop away or something <laughs> i found that bizarre and interesting when i was a child but <laughs> i like i it. don't know i'm not really into cryptids <laughs> yeah yeah i i'm from the pacific northwest up here in oregon so i'm always looking for bigfoot but you know. <laughs> 
one of these days. <laughs> yeah, let me know when you find them. I'll 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 report it for sure. All right. Uh, do you guys have any last minute questions? Oh uh, no, I just wanted to say thank you as well, James, for everything that you do and just for coming on and letting us, you know, poke and prod you directly. It's been a pleasure. No yeah, problem. it's been a great time. Right. Well, thank you guys for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, James. Take care. All right, take care.